है Hello and welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Lara Ehrlich, and tonight's guest is Artress Bethany White. Writer Mother Monster conversations are streamed live on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and then released as an audio podcast on all major platforms. As always, please chat with us during the interview and we will weave your comments into our conversation. Before I introduce Artress, I have a few exciting updates for you. I've just launched the official Writer Mother Monster shop with everything from T-shirts and tea towels to onesies and undies. Support the show in style. And this Mother's Day, May 14th, treat yourself with a writing class with me, your host, and the author of the story collection Animal Wife. We'll share strategies for prioritizing our craft, explore examples set by other writer moms, and do generative writing exercises. You'll leave the workshop energized and armed with a plan for recommitting to your creative work. Finally, a special thank you to our sponsors and patrons listed on the Writer Mother Monster website. Your support helps make this show possible. If you enjoy the episode, please consider becoming a patron or patroness to help keep the podcast going. For details on the store, class, and sponsorship, visit writermothermonster.com. Now I'm excited to introduce Artress. Artress Bethany White, Associate Professor of English at East Stroudsburg University, is a poet, essayist, and literary critic. She's the recipient of the TRIO Award for her poetry collection, My America, Poems, and the essay collection, Survivor's Guilt, Essays on Race and American Identity, which received a 2022 Next Generation Finalist Indie Book Award and is listed as a CLMP Social Justice Read. Her research interests include American slave archives and contemporary African-American prose and poetics. She has four children ranging in age from 14 to 26, and she describes writer motherhood in three words as determined, fierce, improvisational. Now join me in welcoming Artress. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, so I'm excited to speak with you. And let's start with those great uh, three words that you used mm. to describe writer motherhood. Determined, fierce, improvisational. Yes, all of that. Um, determined, um, <laughs> I think that pretty much explains itself, right? Um, just knowing that the decision was made, the child is here, you're there, and together you are going to push through. Mm -hmm. um, folks say that it's 18 years, right? Um, it's really a lifetime. <laughs> so you don't stop mothering. Um, but I, I definitely know that um, I kept that 18-year mark um, as a milestone in my mind for my older kids. And it's true. There's a shift. Tell me it about becomes shift. more like a collaboration. <laughs> Ooh, I want to come back yes. to that. Definitely. I'm looking forward to collaboration. <laughs> yes, it's, it's a nice phase to be in. Um, so yeah, um, it, that's deter, that's determined. Um, what was the other, what were the other two? <laughs> Fierce and improvisational. Fierce. Oh my goodness. Fierce. Well, we do battle for our cubs all the time, don't we? <laughs> 
Um, and that's, you know, that's a part of it. And um, I think just making sure um, that uh, your kids are in the, the right place and in the best hands, you know, um, when those test scores come back saying that your kid should be in the standard class and you're like, wait a minute, they're one point away. No way into that honors class. So that's the fierceness, right? Making sure they stay on your track the way you've um, decided their destiny should play out, um, at least while you still have that level of control, right? Improvisational, um, you you do need to be able to go with the flow, right? And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of improvising in the moment, um, thinking on your feet, right, and making it happen. So, yeah. Those oh, are good yeah. choices. I'm surprised at myself. I like them. <laughs> no, when I read those, I was like, oh, yeah, these. I like the fierce one especially. That's, mm. that's a good one. Um, but let's go back to determination for a second, because I loved that 18 year mark. And I had always heard, I think that five was the age that it becomes a little bit easier and you can mm-hmm. kind of like sit and get some work done. And now, you know, I'm past the five year mark and, and that's true. So I think 18 will be my next marker. So tell me what uh, I can expect at 18. OK, well, I mean, then, you know. I think you go through a phase in the teens where you have to say, um, I'm not your friend. I'm your parent. <laughs> right. Because that friendship friendship during that phase will get you into a lot of trouble. Right. But then around 18, it switches back and you can actually have that friendship. And that's when it becomes more of a collaboration. Where are we going from here? You know, and it's all about that, you know, getting into college and starting to work on your life plan together. You know, I love talking to um, older kids about uh, the classes that they were taking, how to negotiate relationships with their professors, mm-hmm. you know, interesting assignments, um, internships, all that good stuff. Right. So just staying in the loop and it makes the experience a lot easier for them as well. They have someone they know they can go to who has um, had some experience with, you know, the university. And if not um, a parent who is at least read up on it. So they're ready. You know, they can vicariously attend with their kids. So. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. And you have three kids who are um, of and past college age and one 14 year old who's right. Who's on his way. He's that's one of the sons, right? Oh, no daughter daughter. daughter. Okay. Mm-hmm. And before the show, we were saying, so you have two sons and two daughters, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, tell us a little bit just about that, that balance. And, and maybe I know obviously each child is different, but were there things that surprised you about raising sons versus raising daughters? Um, well, what everyone says is true. Um, sons don't have as much drama. They just, yeah, they really don't. Um, so, uh, yeah, the girls bring all the drama and, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I, that's the truth. Um, but one of the things, uh, I tried to be mindful of was, uh, a level of equity about, uh, what they were responsible for. Like, I definitely did not let the boys get away with messes. Mm. I was not for that at all. So, you know, no dishes lying around, you know, no letting your sisters pick up after you. None of that. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Right. Everyone had to, you know, tell the line and, and do for themselves. So that that was um, something that I tried to be mindful of. Yeah. Tell me why that's so important. Um, because um, I don't I don't I wouldn't want them to carry that into their relationships. You know, um, one of the things that uh, we modeled for um all of the kids, I think. So like what a healthy relationship looks like. One of the things that drew um, my husband and I together was the fact that neither of us likes to fight. We just don't, we don't like that kind of emotional drama. And so we, um, you know, decided that, yeah, that's, that's the way we were going to operate as a couple. And, you know, it's work, you know, like we might have like a blowout every once or twice a year, but that's it. You know, meaning one of those, like, I'm going to really talk louder than you and prove that I'm right in this situation. Right. But I mean, this is my kids can attest to this. You know, it's it's that's just the way we roll. And so in modeling that, you know, we wanted to show them what an egalitarian relationship looks like. You know, if my husband says something that I think is really like, you know, we were patriarchal and annoying, I will say, you know, I will let him know and I'll make sure that, you know, the kids know, too, why I'm saying this, you know, why it's problematic. So, yeah, yeah. I wanted to model that. And I didn't want um, the guys to be those kinds of men. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, that's that sounds like good parenting there. <laughs> we think about that a lot. I mean, we just have the one child, the one daughter, but um yeah, it's the same thing. It's trying to model for her, uh, you know, what a strong woman can look like in the home and outside of the home and what a responsible, respectful, loving male partner can mm-hmm. bring to that relationship, too. And, yeah, I'm I'm anticipating the drama, though, that you that you mentioned. <laughs> oh, and the teen years. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, can't, you can't afford you can't avoid that. And so much of it is hormonal. It's just like, you know, it's it's the nature of it. Yeah. So I'll never forget um, my oldest daughter. It, she was she she um, started with the drama late, probably because she was heavily involved in sports. She was a cheerleader. And so, you know, they had so many practices, so many games. There was always something going on. And it was her junior year. Um, and no, I'm sorry, it wasn't. It was like the first semester of her senior year. And she came downstairs with a suitcase. And I said, we had no trip planned. I said, <laughs> where are you going? And she's like, I've decided to move out. <laughs> I, you know, I, I looked at my husband and I said, look, I can't right now. You handle this one. <laughs> but are you kidding me? She literally thought she was just kind of, you know, going to go out and get a cab and go off. And, you know, she talked to us later. I was like, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It seems so easy then maybe that you could just kind of, you know, go off and make it work and mm-hmm. whatever. But if they only knew <laughs> what being What's, a grown up is like, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And what are your older kids doing now? Oh, goodness. Okay. So she is gainfully employed um, and was within like six months after getting her degree um, in corporate. So, yeah, she's and she's a very good manager. 
You know, um, very proud of her. <laughs> I really am because I, I know she's going to do well. Um, second oldest is in graduate school right now, working on a Ph.D., which he said he would never do because we used to talk about this all the time because, you know, I also have, you know, a PhD. And he's like, no, I'm not doing that. And I was like, well, what about a master's? And I was like, oh, you know, we'll start with start there. And he's like, no, I don't think there's any need after my four years. And I'm like, OK, he's a mathematician. And so I said, now, look, <laughs> you by nature of what you've chosen as, you know, your air specialization, you're going to have to get some more degrees. Mm-hmm. So it did work out that way. And now he's really enjoying it. Yeah, he that's just awesome. passed his exams recently. So that's, you know, the halfway point. Right. So mm-hmm. he's very excited about that. Oh, that's wonderful. And what about the third young, third oldest? Um, the third, um, he thought he was going to chart a new path. So um, he's realized that's not going to happen. So um, he'll be uh, starting back at university in the fall. Yeah. And then the youngest is just watching all of this and, you know. Yep. <laughs> Wait, thinking, I'll do my own thing. And then uh-huh. yeah. Pretty much. Like, no, don't, don't, don't try to do that. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Need some skills first. Well, what about you? So were your parents academics as well? Or how did you sort of come to your career path? Mm. Um. Wow, that's a good question. No, they were not. They were business people. In fact, my father wanted me to uh, be a business person as well. And um, they were Burger King franchisees. You know, um, the chapter where I talk about um, their whole business is Burger Princess and Survivor's Guild and what it was like having, you know, parents who had um, basically decided to go into business together. And it was a successful business in that it funded you know, us all, you know, after their their marriage, um, we're a blended family, right? So it funded all of us in our childhood and into college. So it was, you know, quite lucrative for them. Um, but I decided that the business world wasn't for me. I always had a creative spirit. I was an avid reader and I had tried doing some writing in um, high school, but it didn't really amount to much. I did it more from like, you know, uh, dealing with emotionalism, a lot of, you know, thoughts in my head and, you know, that kind of thing. But I was an avid reader and that um, helped me to declare an English major, right, um, when I went to university. And so I remember um, being at college and having these conversations on the weekend when I would touch base with my parents, my dad still trying to convince me to change my major. You know, he's like, please, you'll never make money. (laughs) No, Dad, I really I really think this is right for me. It's a good fit. Yeah. And what does your husband do? He is a statistician. Okay, so that's where the math comes in. Right. He's in corporate as well. Yes. Yes. But, you know, I brought him, I I pulled him into my world. I give him books to read and, you know, he never says no to a book. So this way we can have conversations, you know, beyond what he does. (laughs) (laughs) Has he read your work? He has. Yeah, he used to be um, one of my best critics. But then, you know, I got to the point where it just wasn't you know, reasonable for him to read everything I was producing. Right. So sometimes when he hears me at a reading, he's like, oh, my gosh, I even where did that come from? I've never heard that one. What is that? (laughs) 
like, yeah, you know, I kind of moved on. <laughs> wow. So when did you make the, um, it's not really a switch. When did you, uh, move on from sort of the emotional writing, the sort of angsty writing in college that resonates with me as well? I did that too. Um, to the more professional writing. When did you sort of pursue publishing? I, I actually, I, um, I started publishing just a few years, um, after I graduated, um, undergrad and I, um, I moved to New York and that was a part of my, you know, beginning to carve out a writer, you know, um, persona for myself, a uh, public persona and, um, all of that went well, you know, as far as it goes. Um, and I started, uh, publishing in some journals. I'm trying to think um what what changed things was actually when I became pregnant with my first daughter. And yeah. And um I had been, you know, living the writer's life in in New York. Um, you know, journal publications, some anthology publications, regular readings in the city, um attending you know, uh, readings at like New Yorkian Poets Cafe, um, CBGBs, you know, some places. Um, and then I found that out and I suddenly looked around me and I said, wow, I'm really liking New York, but is this the, is New York City the best place to raise a child as a single parent? And I thought not. Now, this is before I found out about New Jersey. If I had it to do over again, I probably would have just moved to Jersey and I would have been fine. (laughs) So, yeah, that changed things for me, because once I was away from the city, I started thinking more job oriented thoughts, you know, because up to this point, I had been an instructor. I had been teaching as an instructor at Long Island University and I um, had gone on to get a master's degree, but I knew that tenure had to figure in there somehow. Somehow I, I saw myself as a career academic. And so I realized that um, once I had a, had my daughter, that I was going to have to get into a PhD program if I wanted that to happen. So that was the beginning of my academic odyssey of, you know, getting a um, PhD while raising a child, a toddler. Um, there are some fine moments, like the professor who um, I was taking feminist theory with who said, oh, yeah, bring her to class. And so there she was in this wonderful, like, feminist theory, you know, lecture with um, her bag of Barbies. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is so, like, politically incorrect. <laughs> no one said anything. No one critiqued me having her play with Barbies, you know. <laughs> They would just, you know, give her a hug and like play for a minute and, you know, life would go on. So, yeah, it worked out. Um, I had a lot of understanding professors. (laughs) So you had to learn pretty early then how to write while mothering and how to, Mm -hmm. you know, carry a a career while mothering. So tell us a little bit about how you progressed as a writer slash mother and what your sort of logistically how you managed to carve out that career for yourself while also being a mother to four children. Mm, okay. That's, that's a lot. Um, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I think I, 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 there's this watershed moment that took place when I was enrolled in my uh, PhD program 
raising my daughter and it it was um a new like half gallon of milk and I opened it and I was cooking at the same time. I must have had oil on my hands and it slipped out of my hand and it fell on the, on the floor and it started just pumping out of the container. It's like I knew there was no saving this container of milk. And so I was just about to go there. Right. You know, and I said, you know what? It doesn't even make sense to get angry about this. It was an honest accident. So just take your time, pick it up, mop it up, you know, turn off the burner from under, you know, um, the flame from under dinner and just, you know, take it one step at a time. And I always go back to that moment because that is how I made it through that process of earning my degree, you know, just taking it one day at a time. You know, if I had something due and my daughter wanted to go play and the sun was going to set in an hour, I would opt to take her out to play. And I was like, this is what she's going to remember, you know, and playing in the back of my head is like, you know, it's about creating good memories for your children. You know, you don't want them to revisit sites of trauma. You want them to revisit sites of joy. And so that's what I was striving for while I was also trying to meet my goals. Yeah. How did you so if if the next day you also had a paper due mm-hmm. or a deadline for a book or something like that right. um and you would still go out and play which is so powerful and important and I've heard that from so many guests where even my last guest Lisa said if snuggling is on the table I will always accept snuggling so mm-hmm. how do you manage the balance between both making those memories for your children to remember and spending that quality time with them and meeting the deadlines that sometimes come into conflict with that time. Right. So I think I had the pacing right as a single parent. But then when, you know, um, I finished my degree and I was out, you know, working. um, Oh, goodness. I so much. Um, (laughs) Right. So I started um, after I finished my dissertation, I started a different pace and rhythm for getting back to my poetry and really wanting to get that first, you know, collection of poetry out. Um, And, you know, all of that was going well. I decided that regionally I needed to be in a different space. I was working in the South because I um, was hired ABD as a ranked professor because of, you know, my publications and, and what I'd done. But still, I had to finish the dissertation. So I um, applied for jobs and um, I was lucky enough to get one and it was in Tennessee. And I realized somewhere like, you know, in the process after I uh, started teaching there that um, culturally it really was draining. Mm-hmm. And that's some of what I get at in survivor's guilt. Um, it was taxing because I was teaching in a very rural community and I was bringing the wealth of um, my my information for my degree to that community, which they sorely needed, you know, as a specialist in African-American uh, literature. But I had to um, it was just like um, recreating the wheel. I had to start from the, the basics. You know, there was so much lack of information. A lot of my students had come from what were historically sundown towns. You know, um, they were not they were homogeneous communities. You know, they had not had a lot of interaction with people of color. So it's just like everything was a chore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like and so I said, you know what? 
I, if I put myself in a situation in a region where I don't have to do this level of labor, I could probably, you know, churn out a lot more writing, get a lot more done. So there was that going on. And then I met my husband. And so I was like, wow, guess I won't be moving anytime soon. (laughs) And, you know, suddenly we had a family with four kids and wow. So what was really good about how we operated is we were good tag teaming each other. You know, I do dinner, you do baths. I do English homework, you do math. You know, it's like tag your it. And we had this rhythm down, you know, making sure laundry was done. So everyone had, you know, the stuff they needed for soccer and Leo's were washed. So we had stuff we needed for gymnastics and, you know, all of that packing bags. I mean, we were on it. So when did I write? I would grab moments between rituals, like after dinner, while, you know, the slow eaters were still like, you know, finishing up. I would have finished. So I tip away, go to my computer and like bang out something in 10 minutes. You know, it might be a revision of a poem. It might be the beginnings of a new poem. It might be the title of an essay. So at least I knew what, you know, theme I was going for when I went back to it later. I mean, just something. So I wouldn't have a blank page when I came back. And so that's what I would do. And sure enough, you know, after enough nights, I would actually begin to complete work. I would complete poems. I would complete essays, you know. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that's that's how I, I, I use the time that I had to work with, because it was just like unrealistic to think that I could have a regular writing schedule. It just was not in the cards. There was too much going on. I mean, we were in that taxi um, taxi driver phase, you know, of everyone had to be driven somewhere because nobody could drive other than me. Right. So, yeah. So that's yeah. how I made it happen. And I, I you know, and I I didn't let myself think about like what would happen beyond that 10 or 15 minutes. You know, I didn't beat myself up if I didn't use it as productively as possible. Like, why don't I have a page? You know, I had enough time to have a page. None of that. None of that blame. That is also incredibly valuable advice. I was going to say the first part of the advice is so spot on to use that time that we have, even if it's five or ten minutes and Mm -hmm. in small increments, because I think. And we've talked about this before on the show that we grew up thinking that writers spend five hours at a pace sitting at your desk and and working on these tomes when that isn't realistic for today's world, especially for mothers. So I love that, you know, writing time can be five minutes and you can be productive in that time. Touch your work, even if it's a title of an essay. That's wonderful. And then I love even I think even further to to take it a little further and say um that i just lost my my train of thought speaking of like everything going on all at once but um oh yeah not to think beyond that that short period of time Mm -hmm. because i'm definitely one of those people who's like okay how is this fitting into the whole novel and you know what and then you, you have this whole plan in mind. And if five minutes is all you have, you can't write a whole novel in five minutes. No. But you can write a paragraph of a novel. So that's that's great advice. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think actually this could be a good moment to hear a little bit of the work that you produced um, in those short increments that led up to two works, your collection of poetry and your collection of essays. So your choice, what you'd like to share with us. Okay, so um, I actually thought about this um, and I'm looking for here it is. The essay collection. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read um, a little bit from the collection and then switch to a poem. Great. And let's see. One second here. Mm-hmm. This is going to be um, about my mother. My mother, because uh, this is really interesting. Um, so survivor's guilt. Um, hmm. Survivor's guilt was an opportunity for me to deal with my mother's history as well as what was going on in my own life. And that history is that I inherited an oral slave narrative from my mother. I was not raised by her. I was raised by my stepmother. And so our relationship actually, you know, began um, in my adulthood, even though I had visits with her as a child. So um, for the first time, um, she was able to hear me read and hear me talk about my work um, just a month ago in North Carolina. Right. And so it was a really special moment because she you know, she had only heard me talk about it. She had never experienced it. And I think she was kind of blown away, you know, by it. Um, so, yeah. Oh, I'll give you the full screen here. Mm-hmm. Take it away, Artris. All right. As a kid, I recall my father's emphatic words. Your mother is not white. After almost hitting the brakes in the middle of the highway, following my offhand reference to my mother's race. Offering proof, he explained that both of my maternal grandparents were black, which made her also black, despite her red hair and freckles, which seemed to state otherwise. Corrected, I stared out the window of the moving car, marveling that I had spent nearly the first decade of my life believing my mother was white because of her fair skin, hair that did not kink a face full of lintogens and feet that were the same color on top as they were on the bottom. Realistically, I should not have been blamed for misreading my gene pool as a kid. After all, my parents had separated during my infancy and my father had always been my custodial parent. I could count on one hand the number of times I'd visited my birth mother before graduating high school. Still, I had accepted in my child's mind that my mother was white, and it certainly didn't change the fact that she was my mother, despite my own deeper brown complexion. I guess you could say I forgave her for not looking more like me, which meant I forgave her for her skin color, the exact shade of dry sand on an expanse of sun-kissed beach. Color was the obvious difference between this mother and daughter. But while gazing into my bathroom mirror one day, I'd spied a distinctive sprinkle of freckles across my nose. This single shared trait kept everything blood simple. To explain my maternal line of tangled blood ties, my mother passed along her knowledge of a Scottish ancestor named Peter Harriston and a rough date of his landing in British America in the early 1700s. 
She explained that members of our family were enslaved by the Harristons and over time became related to them. During this conversation, she also told me about my great-grandfather and the significance of his middle name, Gilchrist. According to my mother, the name had been passed down in her family for generations. To maintain the tradition, she ensured that my younger brother would also bear the middle name, Gilchrist, for a new generation. This is a poem that um, is from a new collection that I'm working on, and um, it was published in Tahoma Review. Matrilineal. I think about my mother, tied by blood, swirling me in racial taxonomies, wanting nothing to do with slavery. Her love of Disney over planter tableau, technicolor bright with a catchy beat. Contemplate my mother, knotted by blood. Heard tap-tapping through plantation pages, heir to red hair, freckled skin, Scottish jeans, who will have nothing to do with slavery. Fate is African and Euro lineage. Set on a ship's route, cargo and steerage. I think about my mother's fettered blood. From childhood, our genealogy parsed to ensure memory by a woman wanting nothing to do with slavery. I have seen the letters and shackled names, the bloated body of words on the page. I consider my mother tied by blood, whose body screams of slave history. Thank you. And thank you for reading a new poem that you're working on. That was a fabulous reading and very powerful. Tell us a little bit about writing the collection of essays specifically. And, um, I imagine it was, or, or tell me if it was challenging to write so intimately about your mother specifically and your family more generally. If, if it was challenging to do so? Yeah. Okay. Or what were the challenges? Okay. What were the challenges? Okay. Um, well, see, I, okay. Um, that poem kind of gets at, um, some of them because my mother passed along the, um, the oral slave narrative, but she really did not like to talk about slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, she could not watch Roots, either the first version or the newer version. Um, it was hard for her to digest. She always felt that it was very uh, traumatic history and it was difficult for her to revisit it. And so you know, on the one hand, I had the blessing of this family um, narrative which, you know, I started to pass along to my own daughter. And in the middle of having that conversation with her, I said, you know, 
I really need to write this down. It's time for us to not continue to pass it orally. We don't have to do that anymore. It was, you know, done historically for a reason. My great grandfather was uh, the last member of my branch of the family born on a plantation in 1865. Mm -hmm. And he was actually, you know, enslaved technically as a baby for several years. And I'm sorry, for several months until the end of the Civil War. So, you know, once my great grandfather, you know, obviously, you know, um, was free and was raised, you know, as a free person, uh, we didn't have to pass that oral narrative anymore. Right. It, it could have been, you know, committed to paper at that point. But instead, it was passed down and she inherited it from um, him and her mother, you know. And so it's kind of odd to think about that. Um, the first was me being able to wrap around my mind around the fact that um, it was not that long ago that uh, members of my family had been enslaved to realize I was like the fourth generation removed from slavery. So that was the first, you know, getting over that psychological hurdle and um, getting over that was important because it meant, too, that I could begin looking at the documentation of that history. And so um, because the the family was a very large family and there's their uh, holdings, um, the slave holdings was so extensive. Uh, there were plantation records which survived, you know, that history. And they were um, given to one of the university libraries. And so I was able to actually go and go through these archives. Um, it's, it was an intense experience doing that. And, you know, every now and then I would share a little bit, um, with my mother, but, you know, sometimes even that would, um, be difficult for her, you know, um, I'm sure that there are a lot of stories that she grew up hearing that she really didn't want to revisit, you know, um, around racial violence in that part of North Carolina, because uh, the history really runs deep there. You know, um, lynchings, um, some like well-documented ones. And um, her grandfather, my great grandfather, was one of those people who was seen as a negotiator of peace between the races because he was a very um, light skinned black man. He was only one quarter black, you know, if we break it down to, you know, blood percentages. Um, he could basically pass, you know, but um, he did not do that. He was a school teacher in um, the, the county uh, colored, what was then called the colored school. So he was well entrenched in the black community. But, you know, the fact that um, he was referred to as a negotiator meant that, you know, he basically was, you know, trying to save lives. Right. And uh, protect people from the level of racial violence that was going on in the early part of the 20th century in, in those communities. So I, um, you know, every now and then I would be able to glean, you know, something um new in our conversations about the history that would serve to propel me in a certain direction. 
And I was, you know, very excited about what I was able to put together. But it it was very it's very time consuming work because, you know, you always have these little bits of information and you have to kind of put them together into a cohesive narrative. And there is some risk about that. I kept like there was this mantra that kept going through my head. You know, um, I have to get it right. I have to get it right. And then at some point you just realize that everything is not going to be exactly right. Right. Because there are gaps in this information, but you just do the best that you can. And if ever someone comes forward and they correct it, you know, you should be thankful because, you know, then you can go forward and have um, the corrected aspect of the story that you had been searching for. But, you know, was just, you know, you found elusive. So I really began to, I guess, think like a historian, you know. Um, and also the creative me, the poet, um, the, you know, creative writer was able to pull the threads together more tightly in an interesting way. So while there were challenges, um, there was also excitement when I would, you know, read, um, sections of the work before it was published as a book and people were engaged, you know, they um, came up to me afterwards and said, wow, you know, it's really powerful. I'm so glad you shared that. And, you know, they would tell me about the work they've done in their families and on their family histories and so forth. So that's when I knew I was getting it right, because as long as people are impacted, you know, I think most writers feel that they're experiencing success. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that was that was the. um that was the reward, I guess, for the challenges, the times when I would get frustrated, you know, looking at uh, historical newspapers into my eyes. You know, I was ready to, like, claw them out and, you know, <laughs> just looking for bits of information. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so you we were telling me before the show started um, that you that two of your children are black and two are white mm-hmm. and you have a, a mixed race. Uh, partnership. So tell me how this narrative plays into your family life and the raising of your children and the stories that you tell to them about your families, about each other. What narrative do you carry forward? Right. Okay. So, oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, um, it's an ongoing conversation. Like it has no, um, definitive, um, you know, end because we are who we are, you know, as we move through the world and we are who we are with our families. Um, the major difference was that, um, we basically were able to, um, talk openly. We established that about race in our family. Um, but there were moments where, you know, you're just like, where do I begin? Um, I think about uh, the day uh, one of my older sons, white sons, came into the house and he's like, you know, um, so what do you think about the legacy of Malcolm X? You know, um, do you think he was a good guy? <laughs> like, what? That's a you big know? question. <laughs> exactly. Right. And like, like I was going to have an easy response to that, a quick response. And I was like, well, how much time do you have? You know, we really need to talk about a few things. I have to kind of prepare the ground for what I have to say about that. Um, so, you know, there was some of that. Um, more so, um, just reminding, um, hmm. 
reminding them of uh, how they were perceived when they went out into the world. Mm -hmm. And so when they were thinking about their siblings, that they need to be aware of how their siblings were perceived as they moved through the world as well. You know, um, how to recognize if people were being disrespectful, you know, based on race. Right. Not thinking that a space was safe for their sisters just because it was safe for them. Um, and that's, you know, basically the building blocks of privilege and being able to talk about privilege. Right. Now, there are also, um, you know, some really funny moments. Um, for example, when our youngest was learning about um, the civil rights era, you know, this is when she was like about six or seven. Right. Um, because reading books about African-American history was a regular occurrence for her because we wanted her to be well-versed in it. Right. And so she had just learned about Rosa Parks and, you know, felt really you know, good about uh, that story and, and um, the importance of it. Right. So she's watching um, TV one night and, you know, her dad comes in and tells her she, it's time to go to bed. You know, it's, it's, it's late and you have to get ready for school tomorrow. So get up off the couch and, you know, go ahead and do that. And she turned to him and she's just like, Dad, you're being just like the bus driver who told Rosa Parks to get up off, you know, the, the bus seat, you know, by telling me to get up off the couch. <laughs> and I just remember, I like, I went behind the wall and I started cracking up, you know, silently to myself because I'm like, oh my gosh, the history lesson has come to bite him in the butt. <laughs> and she was so indignant. Oh my gosh. <laughs> She twisted that story to suit her purposes, didn't she? Yes, she did. Yes, she did. So, um, yeah, there's some funny moments as well. But, you know, I, you know, all in all, um, I'd say that um, they definitely benefited, you know, firsthand um, from hearing the stories of, you know, their sister's um, travails, you know, because of race and understanding more about African-American culture, because it's very much in the South, um, a black, white binary. Right. Um, and, you know, um, they they needed to, to be clear about that, because. During the time of the 2016 um, election, there was a lot happening, you know, a lot of uh, Confederate flag waving, um, a lot of attacks against um, immigrant um, population, you know, Latino population, black folks. I mean, it was just a lot going on. And, you know, being able to talk about it as a family was really helpful for everyone, you know, Um I think they were able to make more informed decisions about who they accepted into their friend group, you know, realizing that if someone was going to be disrespectful to their sisters, that was not the best person to have within their friend group and being able to separate themselves. Right. So a, a lot of positive um, life lessons yeah. right, came from being able to talk openly about race in the family. And you you told me before the show you started writing the essay collection. Um, was it during that time or a little mm -hmm. later during the pandemic or all of 
all of the above. Right. Um, I started writing a little bit before the 2016 election and then post election, you know, I was, you know, mm-hmm. finishing them out. And then um, the first edition came out during the pandemic. Second edition came out just this past August. So, um, yes, all of all of what we were experiencing you know, during that time period is a part of these essays, as well as the research I was doing into my family history. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of like looking at the the history of my family alongside the history of the nation. And the essays are kind of like woven from from that material. Yeah. Have your children read the book, that specific book? Mm-hmm. Um, some have told me they have. <laughs> <laughs> Um, some parts I've um, shared that deal with like an individual child, I've pointed out, you know, and they've definitely read some of those sections, right? Especially the one where um, my son uh, was experiencing um, racial bias in his cross country team. Mm. And he had an incident that occurred. And I, you know, I marveled at the fact that it happened very near um, the desecration of the memorial uh set up in Mississippi for um Emmett Till mm-hmm. you know on the site where his life was taken and so yeah it was something that we talked about our conversation I wanted him to see how I had woven that in into an essay and um yeah I think he he was impressed that I had gotten it right, but not in the language that um he would use if he were like talking about it yeah. But I had reached back and, and 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 looked at it from so many different you know facets, and I think that that was fascinating for him. Oh wow! Now, did you share those sections with him and with your other children before the book was published, just to sort of show mm-hmm. them what you had done? And did you sort of check in with them that they were comfortable with it, or was that it was it more of just a FYI? Here's right, what I read. right. Um, some of it, yes. Um, it was more like, um, at readings, you know, how you, you, you try things out, obviously, in front of a live audience, um, when you do literary events. And so, um, one in particular, a situation of my daughter losing a friend, um, to, uh, to self-harm, you know? Yeah. Um, she was just so, moved by it she actually wanted me to share it with the child's mother you know who was still in mourning because she thought it was so powerful and yeah and respectful and so yeah I think um you know it it happened um in in moments like that um and then some after publication as well but you know I try you know I I know um, I know my kids, right? And so I try to um, be very careful when I, I do write about them. You know, there are the stories that I will tell them, the stories that I wouldn't put on the page. Yep. Yep. Let's go back for a second, and then I'd love to um, uh, give you the floor again to read us out. But first, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more about your mother and uh, as you were growing up, did you want to be a mother yourself? Like what what sort of mother um, did you want to be? Hmm. 
I don't know all of, I can't remember all of what I was reading. You know, as I said, I was an avid reader, but somehow um, by the time I left high school, I actually believed I wanted to have um, five kids. <laughs> and, really? <laughs> yes. I wanted to have a big family. Do you remember and, why? <laughs> no, and I cannot. No. I truly cannot. Um, so when I had my daughter, you know, I figured that was going to, to be it. You know, this was my one and I was happy for the experience. So then when I became a stepmom and I ended up having four, you know, being, you know, uh, partnered with my husband and, and parenting four kids, I was like, wow. Look at this, you know, um, what I predicted for myself somehow happened <laughs> in the strangest way. So, yeah. Um, so that the numbers like, yeah, that was that worked out um, pretty well. As far as the parenting side of it. Um, just not, you know, really feeling successful if um, they were not, if they felt supported and they were not so scarred that the tales of their scarring would be at the forefront, you know, of their minds in such a way that they would always come up. And so because that does not happen, I think that there is success here. <laughs> you know, they have more happy stories, right? It's sort of that, you know, do you remember when you used to do that? Wow, that really messed with me, you know? So, yeah. Again, I think that's a great piece of advice because no one's perfect and we're mm -hmm. all going to scar our children somehow, although hopefully not, you know, in not dramatically, but just to sort of hope that the good times outweigh the bad times is a really sort of lovely um, goal and it feels achievable, right? Instead of being like a perfect mother to be a mother who's um, who gives your children more happiness than grief. Right. <laughs> feels like a good thing. That's right. That's right. So Arcus, I'm going to turn it back over to you. Mm -hmm. We have a few minutes left here. Give you the floor to, to read again for us and then we'll come back and, and say goodbye. Okay. Uh, let's see. This is from chapter six, um, a chapter titled Childhood Keepsakes. On a beautiful late summer day in a small northeastern Pennsylvania town, members of my husband's family have gathered to deliver Native American artifacts that have been in his family for approximately 70 years into the hands of curators at a local Native American museum. The artifacts belonged to his grandfather, who once, according to family lore, enjoyed a relationship with local Native American tribal leaders. The story goes that some of these artifacts were gifted in recognition of his work as a Boy Scout leader. In his role as troop founder, he devoted some time to educating young men about 19th century American history and culture in the Pennsylvania region in the 1920s and 30s. I, however, learned about the beaded moccasins, feathered headdresses, tobacco pouch, pink beaded headband, and other articles in casual conversation with my husband. Without thinking about it, I commented, you know, you should give them back. 
My suggestion was a default reaction to all I knew of colonial settler exploitation of Native Americans, the words positing a return of traditional objects, however, flew out of my mouth before I even considered the specifics of back to whom. Now, two years after my casual comment, we were preparing to do just that. So a lot of survivor's guilt deals with that um, reconciliation with past, present, um, uncomfortable histories. And because of the makeup of my family and, you know, um, just the circumstance of um, certain other communities and, you know, like the artifacts I just described, um, I tell a lot of stories that um, touch on many communities. And so when um, I put the book out into the world, I really wanted people to walk away from it feeling a sense that um, reconciliation was possible. I think that's a beautiful message, especially where we are now with our society and with pandemic and with, you know, the racial violence we're seeing throughout the country. So a message of reconciliation is a great one to leave us on. Thank you, Artris. Well, thank you. Thank this you. has been such a pleasure. It has been. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Me too. And thank you all for joining us as well. If you enjoyed the episode as much as I did, please consider becoming a patron or patroness of Writer Mother Monster. Um, Even a dollar a month helps um, to support the show with um, fees for web hosting and platforms and such. And, um, Again, I'll give you a reminder that the Writer Mother Monster shop is open with everything, including T-shirts and towels and onesies and underwear and bags and all kinds of things. Um, and remember, this Mother's Day on May 14th, we are doing a workshop to re-energize and recommit to our craft. So please join us. You can look for details on writermothermonster.com for all of those things. And if you enjoyed the show, please join us again next week for Rebecca Mackay. And thank you so much. See you soon. <laughs>